This episode has been brought to you in part by the Azrieli Music Prizes. Join them in celebrating artistic excellence at the AMP Gala Concert, live from Maison Symphonique in Montreal, happening October 20th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Orchestre Metropolitain will premiere award-winning music by laureates Aharon Harla, Iman Habibi, and Rita Ueda. Learn more at azrielifoundation.org backslash AMP. This is Bonjour Chai, the Shul is Such a Drag edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Montreal. And David Sklar in Calgary, we are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, Back to School Part 2. I have a conversation with Yehuda Kurtzer of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America about day schools and how to think of them. And we discuss an interesting reporting job that David went on. But first, Alana David. Things are good? It's been a busy Jewish week for me, and we'll talk about that, I think, a little bit later on. I'm checking along. Excellent. Before we get to any of that, first, I will be at Ashkenaz Festival this weekend. If you're in Toronto, come say hi. The entire CJN team is going to be there Sunday and Monday. It's at the Harborfront Centre. Come to Ashkenaz Festival this Sunday and Monday. Uh, we also want to announce the first ever Canada-wide Sermon Slam for Bonjour Chai. Is that exciting? You guys are seem so nonplussed by Well, uh, tell us more about <laughs> it. Okay. It's just the name Sermon at the moment. I know nothing about this. I want to hear more. The name alone should like inspire like thrills. Ooh. Um, we want to feature rabbis doing what they do best, right? The high holiday sermon. We want to devote time over the next uh, several episodes to rabbis giving us their best four minute excerpt of a past sermon, uh, or even this year's sermon, if you're so inclined. So we're going to feature several uh, every episode. Hopefully we'll get enough rabbis. Um, and this will all culminate in a finals round in October for Shabbat Parashat Bereshit. So if you're a rabbi and you want to take part, uh, send us an email at bonjour at the cjn.ca. We'll follow up with all the details and we'll take care of all the details and everything. And if you want to nominate your rabbi for this, email us with the name of your rabbi and how to reach them, and we will do our best to get them on too. So I'm really looking forward to this uh, sermon slam. It'll be the best, um, juiciest, most important, most meaningful parts of that. And we want to be able to crown Canada's uh, best four minute sermon, hopefully soon enough. So that's uh, that's going to be coming up on Bonjour Chai in the next little while. Very fun. Avi, what does the winner get? I was I was trying to figure this out. Uh, what do you think it should be, David? Uh, I think a rabbi always enjoys a good book. Can we get them maybe uh, a new updated copy of, of the Torah, of the Tanakh? The, the, last time I checked, the updated copy of the Torah is called the New Testament. And <laughs> we don't actually... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. So last week, we convened a panel to discuss the role and effectiveness of day schools in 2022. 
uh, the response to it has been quite positive, and that, coupled with many of the points brought up in the panel, means that we wanted to do a follow-up. Here with us today is one of the leading observers of North American Jewish life, Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer. Yehuda is the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America and the host of the Identity Crisis podcast. Yehuda, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thanks for having me. Okay, so why don't we dive right in. There is this perception that we have a lot of kids going through day school, but they don't actually come out with a thick Jewish identity. And when we were pondering this question amongst others, it seemed as if the actual role of day schools have very different meanings for many different groups, as well as what qualifies as success has changed over time. Right. So we can start by going into some of that first, right? So um, to look at what is the actual role of day schools, is it about socialization? Is it about knowledge, uh, the idea of yediot, certain basic ideas of Judaism that have to come through? Is it about Jewish values? And then maybe we can spend some time going into where things have come from and where do you think they're going? Great. So, you know, I, I think one of the first questions we have to ask whenever we have a conversation like this is not just what what is Jewish education or Jewish day school supposed to achieve, but what is the over, what is the climate in which we're in, um, and and to to use that as a means of trying to understand why something is or isn't working. Right? It's not that Jewish day schools or camps or supplemental mm-hmm. schools, or whatever it is, are merely in a vacuum. And then we can say this does X better. Uh, we have to notice the environment that we're in. In America, in particular, probably more than Canada, but I think it's true across North America. The overwhelming uh, framework for Jewish identity is assimilative. <laughs> that was kind of the goal of many Jews who moved to North America: was figure out a way to make our identities work within this broader cultural context. Assimilative. Um, and now we ask, after basically a hundred mm-hmm. years of unexpected success, what do we have to do to kind of hold back against the assimilative tendencies of the cultures that we're in? Um, And so all of Jewish education is weirdly kind of on the defensive against a project that we collectively kind of agreed to do. It sounds like what you're saying is, you know, I always used to say that um, we are actually the least assimilated point in history, right? We have the fewest number of people that are, quote unquote, going off the derech or leaving, you know, Judaism in general, because uh, we have the ability to have loose ties, right, in the, in the in a modern era. And that that never existed, that many, many people left than we ever imagined, mm-hmm. but you never heard from them again. And now all of a sudden, day schools are dealing with this role of saying, well, loose ties is something that we want, but how do we want to reframe that? It's, we, we need tighter, we need thicker ties than, than that, and how loose and versus how tight. And, and that's the framework that we're existing in. Yeah, and look, we, we all of us have available to around us communities of Jews who have responded to the conditions in which we're living by saying, no, the best way to do this is to separate completely separate ourselves, create social and cultural boundaries mm-hmm. between us and the surrounding culture. The challenge emerges for those of us who don't identify as Haredi, as ultra-Orthodox Jews, to say, how much do we want mm-hmm. of social and cultural differentiation? And how much do we want of social and cultural assimilation and integration? And that's the that's the essential problem that I think mm-hmm. um, all frameworks of Jewish identity are trying to, or Jewish education are trying to deal with. So then when it comes to, let's say, K through 12 education, right, then what you're saying is that the question needs to be asked of what do we expect of day schools in terms of how thick the identity they want and versus how, you know, assimilative they want it to be? That's right. And what choices are we as parents as, or we as educators uh, what, what conscious trades are we willing to make and what choices are we making in order to achieve what end? In other words, you can't simply say, okay, let's make a chart. Which of these works more? 
you know, day schools, camp, supplemental schools. Well, works more to achieve what? <laughs> Do I want my kids to know more about Judaism? Do I want them yeah. to pr principally have Jewish friends? Do I want them to live a life in which the Jewish calendar is primary compared to the secular calendar? So if I, once I can solve those questions, then, you know, depending on the kind of Jewish identity I want to get on the other end, camp might be a better option and day school might be a better option. So that's the that's the what a success look like. And what that's you right. seem to be saying is that every parent is different, um, whereas we sometimes end up thinking about it as a top down model. Right. Day schools think this is what the role of day schools is about. Mm -hmm. Right. And we don't often think about all the other pieces until you take that step back. You know, one of the big debates that came up and I'm curious what you think, um, because it sounds like what you're saying is much more it's about socialization than about knowledge and and, and that that was the question, right? Do we want a, a Jewish day school that has mediocre or minimal Jewish instruction, like actual Talmud learning and all of that stuff, and yet has a robust idea of saying you belong in a Jewish community and that that's important? Or do we want to flip it around and say we don't really care about the community that you're in because we'll take care of that at home, but I can't teach you. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm personally a rabbi, but I, I can teach my kid Talmud, but I don't have time eight hours during the day. And for most people, they don't have the ability to learn. So go to a Jewish school um, and we'll take care of community on Shabbos and, you know, in other places and other times. I think it's, I think it's even more complicated than that. It's not socialization versus education. It's social is, it's not binary. The, the reason it's not binary, I think, is because it actually depends on what the ideological uh, framework is of the school. So I'll just give you a, a kind of anecdotal observation, which is, um, you know, I'm here in San Francisco, and talking when I talk to my some of my non-Orthodox friends here in Jewish San Francisco, it's a really complicated place with respect to Jewish identity. Um, their choices around day school going to, are between a community day school or a public school. And actually, socialization into Jewish identity makes some of them very uncomfortable. But the Jewish day school actually is better educationally, not just on Jewish subjects, but even on secular subjects than the local public school. So once, if the choice is between those two different things, well, what the parents are choosing is actually not necessarily socialization. It's actually some measure of, is this the best possible Jewish education and am I willing to pay for it? Whereas you move over to Orthodox schools, Many Orthodox parents assume that their children are going into Orthodox environments and are actually choosing socialization, even though on both the Jewish education and maybe on the general education, they know they might be taking a hit. But they're not, they're, they're not really holding Jewish day school education against a competing set of choices. So even within the context of particular day schools, how the school identifies ideologically is going to have a significant effect um, and what, how the parent body identifies on how, how parents balance between the choice between am I choosing this for the socialization purpose or the education purposes. I get the sense that this wasn't always the case, though, that historically day school was either because we weren't allowed into the right elite institutions right at high school levels or because of the knowledge factor, right, and knowledge and values. And we didn't think nearly as much about socialization and these loose ties versus uh, stronger ties. Um, is that the case? Is that, I mean, are we, you know, actually thinking about these things more than we ever have before? You know, when I went to, I mean, I went to a yeshiva, so it's different. I went to a very Haredi yeshiva, but when I was around, the sense was that day school was primarily about learning, right, because you couldn't get Gemara in a public school, and most people weren't going to do it in the afternoon or the evening, then go to a Jewish day school. Is that really way off? And this is the first, this is not at all the first time that we think about this in the, you know, in this way? Well, I'm not, I'm not a historian of this, so I don't want to, 
I don't want to totally speculate on it. I think there are two things. There are two things that feel totally different about now. One is, you know, as you indicated, talking about day school education in the 1940s and 1950s in America means means talking about a time when um, the capacity for American Jewish assimilation is totally different, and so the choices around socialization are really different. Um, and the second thing that I think I think we're we're only about a hundred years into this. So by Jewish standards, that's like yesterday of societies in which in which our expectation is that all of our children are are deserving of, uh, and that it's our obligation to provide them with uh, a comprehensive and world class education. <laughs> but like go back two hundred years, that's certainly not the case. Not just not for girls, but certainly not for all boys. Uh, so we're. St- it's not surprising to me that the, that we are still working out now the question of what does it mean to provide our children with a Jewish education, both from the perspective of how quickly our capacity to assimilate, to live flourishing lives without necessarily needing um, the stuff of our culture or our tradition in order to flourish as human beings, and still trying to figure out like what does universal education for our children mean? Uh, we as a Jewish society, it's, it's still we're still relatively new to that story. Yeah, and I think that's you know, to add on top of that is that we're finally at the point where we're comfortable enough where we do expect all the things. We do expect, even if we don't want it, we expect the world-class education, right? Whether in the Orthodox world or the non-Orthodox world, right? If you're at a world-class uh, non-Orthodox Jewish high school like Frankel or Gan Academy, you know, in the States where they say, we're giving you the world-class secular education, but we're also giving you the world-class you know, knowledge, uh, Jewish knowledge that you're learning, and you're going to learn Chumash with the BDB, and you're going to learn uh, Talmud with all of the you know, methodologies and all the, you know, however that's going to work. And then in the Orthodox side, the excellent schools are the ones that are, where, you know, when I taught at Maimonides in Boston, it was about excellence. It was about, we don't, we don't make a difference between saying that Gemara class is the, ex- the, the important thing and math is, you know, sort of on the side. We want them, we expect those things to be fi- fully excellent. Um, and that, that complicates things when you're not in a place where excellence is possible. And so you say to yourself, oh, I wish I was in, in Baltimore where we had those choices. I wish I was in Riverdale where I can go to all these different places. So we're finally at that place where we expect all those things, but we often don't have access to them. Yeah, and to even make it worse, I mean, this is what my, this is my colleague, uh, Dr. Rifka Schwartz, talks about this quite a bit. She's a senior administrator at SAR High School. She says within um, the Orthodox community, there's a dual expectations that our schools be both excellent and affordable. But when you actually probe the question of what excellence looks like, it means a world-class secular education that's going to get kids into elite schools, a wide set of clubs and activities and all these other offerings, a fantastic Judaic education, and excellent facilities. And what that means is you're building Elite prep schools, and that's great. If that's what you want um, for your children, that's great. It's just not realistic at the same time to then be upset when day school education is not affordable. Yeah, you know, and and it's it's funny because it's way more affordable here in Quebec, even more so than in Ontario. Um, we actually get a reasonable amount of uh, subsidies from the government, um, but even then, it's it's still way more expensive. And we, we we sit there and we worry about it, and we talk about it, and then that becomes yet another confounding variable: how much are we willing to spend for these types of things? All right, so maybe we can take it from the you know from the reverse, right? What would what should we not expect day school education uh, to provide for us? 
right? We're, we seem to be putting everything in. So if we're going to go and say, well, how do we make it realistic that people actually might be happy with their schools, right? Maybe we should, you know, seed certain things into people's minds and say, you know, don't expect your day school to do this and don't expect your day school to do that. And then maybe we can start working at it. Again, you're not the expert, but you're, no, I, well, you're you is, have you have ideas, yeah. I'm guessing. <laughs> I mean, it's a complicated question for me because my, my wife, Stephanie, is the head of a day school. Um, and so, um, so what I'm going to say now, I, I say very lovingly, which is I think the first thing we have to do as parents or as community leaders around any institution of Jewish life and especially around schools is to know that they, they are not solely responsible for whatever outcomes that we want to create and to to come up with the calculus of how much do we actually want them to achieve their objectives and what onus on us, what onus is on us to act in complementary ways towards their education. Another way of saying it is you're always going to have to supplement and sometimes counter what happens in the context of what your children look in school learn in school in order to get them to the, your children to a place where you want them to go. So I don't know what the I don't know what the percentage is. Is it once it's below 70%, then maybe it's not the right school for you. If you're fully countering what the school is doing or complementing, um, then maybe it's just too much and you have to look at other options. But I have, um, I just try to take an approach of this school is going to get us 70 to 80% of what we need. And then a lot of us falls on the household. And, and truthfully, that's been the story for Jews for a long time. Uh, institutions are never supposed to replace our convictions in our households in terms of our primary responsibility to educate our children. To me, that feels like a, it feels to me like if we could kind of universalize that approach, you would have a lot less griping about the failures of our schools because they're only supposed to get 70% of the way there and the rest of the onus or responsibility falls on us. I actually said this last week and I'm curious, um, you know, what, where, where you think this, this can or should go in that I think, and based on what you were saying earlier, in terms of like the eras that we're in now, I think we're in the first era where we are sending kids to school, not we necessarily, you or me, but people are sending their kids to Jewish day school with the expectation that that is going to be the Jewish life and that it was, it's not going to be done at home. And that that's where a lot of the failures are happening, where we say, well, you're not coming out with a thick Jewish identity. It's <laughs> how do you expect somebody to have that thick Jewish identity if we live something very, very different at home. We don't keep Shabbat. We go skiing, you know, for the weekends. We don't go to shul. Kosher is something you learn in school as opposed to something that you do at home. And yet, the, you know, we wonder why, you know, there is failure, quote unquote, in the day school system. And I think that that's probably the first time in history where something like that is happening. And that speaks directly to what you're saying. And what I had said was even beyond the 70 to 80 percent, I think that it's 100 percent. If you're not invested in doing Jewish, right, in a significantly aligned way at home, then you are throwing away your money. Or, well, throwing away your money is a big statement. Another way of saying it is you can, you can expect you're going to get something out of it, but you can't realistically expect the transformation of your children in an educational environment if it's not, um, it's not a collective commitment. And this goes in both directions. It's not just like I'm not observant, but the school is observant and I want my kids to come away with that. It also comes from the perspective of, I don't fully align ideologically with the school. Okay, then that's your responsibility to help bridge that gap for your children, to help them understand what are the places where we disagree with what the school does and for them to turn those into rational choices. We've been playing this out in our home because we belong to a conservative synagogue. We send um, two of our kids to an Orthodox day school and, and one of our kids is in a community day school and we disagree every day with something that our kids are learning in a community day school and something that our kids are learning 
in an Orthodox day school, and that's what that's what we talk about at dinner. It sounds like you're in my brain right, right. now. That's what, so that's so then <laughs> that's your job to talk about it at dinner, yeah. um, and to not simply say, sure. "I want either I want my children to absorb and take and therefore be shaped by this environment," and I certainly don't want them to be constantly rejecting that environment because of what we're teaching them at home. Do you? Um, you're. I don't know if you're one of these podcast hosts that is a big podcast listener in the Jewish sphere or not. But one of the podcasts that I listen to is uh, Halacha Headlines, the Headlines podcast with uh, David Lichtenstein. Mm-hmm. It's the, uh, the one of the big big Haredi albums. You ever heard it? I heard it. I heard a few episodes because we had him on Identity Crisis uh, a year or two ago, and I wanted to prepare for. That's it. right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So he's interesting. You know the vibe of that. It's more Haredi, but he's tried tries to take a contrarian approach. And this most recent episode this week. Um, is about how in the Haredi world, there's a lot of emphasis and push to get parents to sign the uh, the pledges against internet in the home. Otherwise, you don't get to go to this yeshiva and, or this Beis Yaakov and that there's a huge handbook that you have to sign and abide by. Um, and I can't help but think that in some ways, right, like I, I don't like it. I, we, we, we all go and say, well, how can you make somebody sign as a parent or as a, as a kid that you're going to abide by all of these regulations that the school goes by and that there's many uh, situations where kids don't get into schools because it's not the right fit for us and they get pushed out and the school comes, the school year comes and they can't find a Jewish day school, a yeshiva to go to, right? So they've been talking about this for the past couple of weeks. And then part of me then goes and says, yeah, but at the end of the day, um, at least then socialization-wise, right, you know that you don't have kids who are significantly different from the ethos of the school in that school, right? So in some sense, right, could you imagine if your wife had this thing where you said, listen, we're not going to make you sign things about the internet or about Shabbos or about kosher, but this is broadly speaking what the ethos of our day school is, right? And if you don't, if you're not thinking in this way in your 70 to 80%, maybe you don't belong here. And yet we go and we vacuum everybody up, for the most part in day schools, because we care so much about day school that we don't go and say, hey, you know, maybe you're not, maybe maybe a different day school or maybe a public school with an after-school program is better for you. Yeah, well, Beit Rahman does this uh, in, their hand, in the school handbook around Shabbat observance. Um, actually, there was the, the way they handled the pandemic, I thought was very powerful, which was they essentially put out a kind of covenant. This is how we want our school community to talk about um, pandemic restrictions. Here in America, part of our challenge was that we had no functioning local city or state or national government. So every Jewish institution was essentially making decisions for themselves uh, based on the knowledge that was available. And one of the things that Stephanie did is she introduced a covenant, which was, if you disagree with the policies that we're undertaking and want them to be more lenient, um, that then you can complain to us. But you can't make a big stink about it in the community if you want them to be more strict than hold to a stricter line. In other words, it was a way of saying, we have to find a way as a community to hold to a certain set of values. And they already have been doing that around Shabbat observance and Kashrut and a whole bunch of other things. I think that's, a, I think that's exactly right, which is instead of schools essentially saying the culture or the values of these schools are implicit, and we kind of hope that everybody fits into it, Make it really explicit. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to say we demand, um, as some, as you said with Haredi schools, we demand that you don't use internet in the home. We demand the standard of kashrut. But to say this is the ethos that characterizes the school, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's like, um, it's like, it, it's product labeling. This is what it is, and this is what it's not. And it's also a means of instilling a sense of if you want to belong to this community. I don't think we have a choice in our in in our in our consumer driven environments than to say, here's you know here's this is what you're buying. 
this is the community that we're trying to create. I think it's in everybody's interest. Yeah, I uh, like I said, I couldn't agree more, and I think that that's important. But you know, what it, one of the things that it does end up happening is um, we don't enforce these things. I've noticed this in a lot of the day schools, especially where it's not such a consumer-driven model. Once you move out of you know the major American metropolitan areas, you know, I was talking to my wife about this, and she's a good observer of this. Also, she's American, and um, she grew up in New York, and but she's here in Montreal and she goes, but it's so, it's so fundamentally different in Canada where even the major centers like Montreal and Toronto that have a lot of Jewish day schools, you don't feel that consumer driven model nearly as much in that here are choices. This is who we are and you, you're free to do other stuff. You see that in a couple of schools, but there's one Orthodox day school in Montreal. Um, there's uh, several community day schools and then there are ones that there's one that's more secular so so you don't have it's a much more narrow spectrum and then as a result people feel compelled to take many more people and because you're you know every student means more dollars you end up wanting to take you know many many more students than you might otherwise uh have picked if you're picking just a uh you know just exactly who you want or at least creating this strong ethos. So I understand that the variable would be very different in a community with one day school as opposed to on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where anyone who's choosing day school is not only choosing day school, but they're choosing among a series of really good options that are available to them. I get that. So the differentiation is going to look different. I don't know why that that argument prevents or precludes a school from trying to create a culture of um, communication, transparency, and expectations, it's, it's going to be a different, it's going to look different than when you can basically say, here's how we're not the same as Heschel, and here's how we're different from Ramaz, right? Nobody really says that, but that's kind of code, right? Um, but why can't, why couldn't we create con, um, kind of covenantal structures, even in schools where they are going to have to, by definition, be more inclusive? Uh, you know, sometimes that can happen through what you might call explicit covenanting, and sometimes it just happens through education. Like, what is the what's the parent outreach strategy in a school like that? Um, you, what's the what's the parent educational strategy in a community like that? I, so, I, I think that you're right to say it's going to look really different. I'm just not convinced that it means that it it can't happen in any sort of way. Yeah, I think the 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 realities on the you know on in in the day to day living in you know in these in certain communities and certain schools is that there's such a fear of pushing anybody away that a lot of that gets pushed back, put back in the waist, you know, in, in the, really in the backseat, right? It's, we don't even want to talk about it. This is what we do. We're wonderful. We're a day school. Don't you want to send your kids to a Jewish education without taking that step back and thinking about it? Um, and that we end up, you know, a lot worse for it. Whereas what you're saying is absolutely true. And we should be even in a community that has one school creating spaces where we say, we have a white, we have a big tent, places that have one Orthodox shul, and that have to get everybody from the Haredi to the to the really, really liberal Orthodox, end up having a big tent in their in their shuls. Um, we end up having to do that with schools, but um, being thoughtful and, and real and meaningful about it. And as you say, it's not I don't think it's as easy, right, outside. And I, this is where I'm, I don't like being Canadian and saying, oh, we're so different and we're so backward. We're, we're still 20 years behind, you know. We, we still think sushi is cool in the Jewish community here, you know, whatever it might be. <laughs> I think in America they still do also. Yeah. But that's a different story. You know, you um, know, um, I'll just, I'll just on this yeah. point, uh, I was in Chicago, you know, a couple months ago launching our, our Hartman presence there. And the topic that I taught on was, um, yes, the topic that I taught about was, um, 
what do we mean by a big tent? And you use that language. The reason I wanted to talk about it is similar to what we're talking about here, which is we use terminology like our Jewish community is a big tent. Federations use that kind of terminology, and we never we never probe it, and we never and we and we never create real texture about what we mean about it. We don't debate it, and so some people experience it positively, and some people say, "Oh my God, this Jewish community is hypocritical." It talks, it describes itself as a big tent and leaves me on the outside. And the only way to bridge that gap is to turn the implicit conversations that are taking place in Jewish life into public and explicit conversations. So the same way, like I want day schools to. I would love for day schools, as we were saying, to just talk publicly with their communities and constituencies about what do we mean by our commitments? What do we mean by trying to instill an orthodox education? Turn it into educational strategy. If anything, Jewish education should be able to have an educational strategy about their mission and values and goals. Um, and I think part of the resentment that you're describing or you're manifesting around schools is they're trying to do X. Other people feel that they should be doing Y. So let's you're still not going to solve that issue, right? There's always going to be disappointment. But I would love for all of our educational institutions to be able to make public or make clear this is what we're trying to achieve and create a kind of a different level of buy-in through that kind of educational work. It's fascinating. I, uh, that came up recently, but in the political sphere at a Hartman event in Montreal that was part of a, a cohort of uh, Montreal leaders. And we were talking about a big tent. Of course, that's what Hartman talks about. And uh, the... Um, uh, one of the one of the participants said, you know, something about how, of course, you know, we have a huge tent in Montreal, but we have a few red lines, and one of those, for example, is you know, unequivocal support for the state of Israel. And this was a leader of a of an organization, and all of a sudden, other people in the room were like, wait, wait a second, right? Why would you say that? You're alienating a lot of people in this room, let alone a lot of people in the community, and we don't think about that in terms of what learning looks like, let alone what Zionism might look like or what political pieces look like. Um, that brings me to another point, which is interesting, um, about the um, how I think it's much more true in Canada, and I don't know if what the I've had that similar but less so experiences in the U.S., but we, we tend to seed a lot of day school day-to-day um, -day running, especially at the Limudi Kodesh level, to the Orthodox, and that um, you end up having that as a default, and that, that there's a lot of negatives that get associated with that in that sort of like way. When, you know, in America, you, you don't have that as much, um, but you end up having a lot of Haredi um, and Chabad control of, day, of school learning, Right, and that that is part of that implicit, explicit problem. And I, I wonder um, if there's anything that, like you know, you've thought of or you, you've you've pondered um, about how we we tend to give up a lot of our Orthodox life or our, our communal uh, religious life to Orthodoxy. Yeah, I think it's a little bit less of an issue in this in in major metropolitan areas in the states um, than than what you're describing in Canada. I think so, I think we there's some of it, um, and the, the challenge for non-Orthodox Jews in America, and it's a really, really big one, is the reason that the reason that the world exists the way you're describing it is because there's simply a different value that's placed on Lima Torah for its own purpose, study of Torah for its own purpose in Orthodoxy than in the non-Orthodox denominations. In fact, you know, the, the, the folks who are most likely to spend uh, several years of their professional earning life, years studying Torah are doing so in the context of getting an advanced degree, which is called smicha, which is rabbinic ordination. It's just not normative that someone would take a year or two of learning kolel 
if it wasn't if it didn't have a kind of professional uh, opportunity on the other end. And that's as a result, you're just not going to have nearly as many people who are learned. It's just that's the reality. Hadar obviously is trying to change that. Pardes to some degree is trying to change that. Um, but you're still talking an order of magnitude that's nowhere near um, what it's supposed to be. And what's on what's on what's and and the bottom is dropping out. Correct. In and the seminaries are dropping seminaries. out too. And the majority of people who are going into rabbinic education in in the American seminaries are doing so because they see it as a social activism degree more than they do as a learning Torah degree. Um, so what the pro, the uncomfortable truth for non Orthodox Jews is that systems that people have been railing about for a long time, like kolel, being on the dime of the community to study Torah, are those actually might be. <laughs> existentially necessary for the future of non-Orthodox Jewry. So you'd have to like take a deep breath and say, yes, our community thinks it's valuable to invest in the Torah learning of a whole bunch of people, whether or not it's going to turn into an advanced degree on the other end, because by doing so, we will signal that this is a value to us and we will raise the bar and fill the pipeline of people who have the kind of Torah learning to then pursue jobs and careers in Jewish education. Um, and certainly non-Orthodox Jewish community can pay for it. You have plenty of philanthropy. It's just, it's one of those pieces of, it's a kind of investment that you can't really see the quote-unquote ROI on the other end. <laughs> I don't know. I got a lot of pushback when I suggested that even if you don't have kids in day school, you benefit from day school in the community and therefore day school should be taxed, right, the way that we tax schools in society and say, you're, you don't have kids or your kids are all grown up, you still benefit from day school education and that should be a tax on your synagogue membership or federation member, you know, dues or whatnot. And people were like, you can't possibly ask the community to do that. But what you're saying is exactly that. We pay for Colel. It's not a all across the community. It's an opt-in as opposed to an opt-out. Uh, but one of the reasons why we pay for ultra-Orthodox full-time learning is because then it then, it then trickles down. It's, it, it's, unco it's an uncomfortable thing, because especially because many of us look at what happened in the state of Israel, where um, paying for kolel of the learned elite turned into paying for full-time learning for everybody, uh, and that is having, a, a, I think, a very devastating Im, um, influence on Israeli society, but also on the notion of what kolel was supposed to be. Um, but in general, you know, Avi, I have a more... I'm fascinated by communitarian models. I'd be, I'm really interested in, in trying to figure out whether you can go back to kind of tax systems for Jewish belonging and community for North American Jews. And realistically, the answer is no, because everybody's a free agent. But it would be a much better system than the one that we currently have. Yeah, I, uh, I don't disagree. Um, just to, to wrap things up, I think we, uh, we're covering a lot of ground. I don't want to get too, too far afield. What are some of the uh, alternatives that, um, that you've seen that are actually working, right? If somebody basically goes and says, I, right, maybe I don't belong in the day school system, right? And there are people that say they'd rather send their kid to camp than and, and to a public school. Um, are there after-school programs that are genuinely effective past bar mitzvah? Is there anything that's innovative that's out there that you've seen that you say this is important and that we should be looking at these types of things? Look, I'm a big believer in Jewish camp. I think uh, in the American Jewish community, Jewish camp is viewed as kind of the best thing going. Um, in our family, it's been a complimentary tool. I think my kids got something out of camp that was really different. Uh -huh. I just gave up my wife to camp rabbi at Yavna, yeah. so you know, yep. the, you know, I don't go to camp, but um, they do. <laughs> so I, that's, uh, I think camp is fantastic. I, um, I think that the growth in the market of not exactly Kolel, but 
young adult learning programs for a year, for six months. I named a few of them, but there are others. Svara, there's a whole bunch of other organizations that are growing around giving people the opportunity to really just jump into learning. And it doesn't have to be, you know, you miss a lot when you don't start at age nine or age six, but you can get a lot even if you start at age 23. So I think that's a, that's a, a wonderful and growing economy. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think that where, where I see a lot of the work around Jewish education right now in the American Jewish community is a sense of real urgency and then trying to look for, like, where are the cracks? How do I catch you for 20 minutes at a Hillel? How do I plant a Jewish educator in a JCC? How do I find people in betwixt and in between? And, um, and until and unless we, ch- we radically change the landscape, right, um, or the cultural environment in which we're in forces Jews to confront their Judaism, which isn't about to happen, I think that's what the future of a lot of Jewish education looks like, which is kind of like windows of opportunity. And, and, we, and I think the non-Orthodox Jewish community has to take um, real cues from Chabad. Chabad has always been at the forefront of, I'll grab, if I can grab you for 10 minutes to wrap tefillin, I've done something good um, by Judaism and by the Jewish people. And maybe non-Orthodox Judaism has to think in the same terms. I can't, not going to be able to get people for fully comprehensive commitments, but how do I provide them with something powerful and interesting and valuable? And maybe if I'm lucky, they'll come back again tomorrow for 10 minutes more. Okay, so so adult education, really, it sounds like I'm, hey, I, that's what I do full time. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm as big a believer in adult education as one can possibly be. But uh, maybe that is, maybe we say we give up on uh, day schools and say it's for a, f- a certain number of people. We're not going to push this whole model. And we say, as adults, uh, you don't have to come to show every week, but go to learn something real and go find something uh, important. But yeah. Yehuda Kurtzer, thanks for coming on Bonjour Chai. You're welcome back anytime. Absolutely. Thanks, Ami. Elul is upon us, and with it, the annual period of introspection that Jews go through leading up to the High Holidays. Um, one of the ideas I was thinking about this week is a teaching from Rabbi Isaac Luria, one of the most famous Kabbalists of all time. You might know him better by his acronym, the Arizal. He lived in the 16th century in Sfat, you know, that hotbed of uh, Kabbalism in, the, um, in Israel uh, in the post-Inquisition uh, era, in the post-Spanish expulsion. Um, so he says that Yom Kippur, known in Hebrew as Yom HaKippurim, should also be read as Yom Kippurim, a day that is like Purim, right? And that the holiness and even the atonement that one achieves on Yom Kippur is not even close to what can be achieved on Purim. So now there's many ways to understand this, but I want to focus on one, and it has to do with what we do on Purim versus Yom Kippur. So Purim is all about masks. Uh, We wear masks to conceal our identities, just as God was concealed throughout the story of Purim, right? Um, Yom Kippur, on the other hand, is all about burying our souls, right? Admitting that we have all sinned, going to others, asking them for forgiveness, exposing ourselves for who we really are. Um, Which one has greater power? I don't know, right? Covering ourselves or exposing our true selves, right? And that um, was something that I was thinking about um, because David was doing some reporting for an upcoming piece and he was telling us about it uh, a little bit before. And uh, David, can you tell us about your visit to Shul recently and how this might relate to, or I'll try to explain how this might relate to what I've been thinking about. Well, Rabbi Avi, I was very impressed with that prelude. I actually think that's a great concept to to talk about these two events that I attended. Uh, so the first one, right now it's Pride Week in Calgary. What I did on this weekend was it was Pride Shabbat, Friday night at Temple B'nai Tikva. And um, basically... It was shut down for the past couple of years because of COVID, but they are back with a vengeance this year. And it was just a really nice 
way to sort of reconnect with old faces, meet new people in the community. Um, the mayor spoke, as well as some prominent politicians and community activists. So that was the first part of what we did. But then it continued on Sunday morning with, pro with a drag brunch. And this was the first annual drag brunch that was held at Beth Tzedek Congregation, which is the conservative synagogue. Something tells me this was the first drag brunch in, in a shul in all of Alberta, possibly even in all of Canada. That's a great question. I could not speak to any of that. I'm not sure, but it was the first one held in this conservative shul. That is what I know, Abby. Um, and it was really, it was really interesting. So they talked. The host spoke. The host is a drag performer as well, too. And the, the host talked about how this was their synagogue growing up because they're from Calgary. They are Jewish. And it was very surreal, but also very beautiful to have them back performing at this time. The rabbi was there. Their parents were there. Um, it, it was very impressive and enjoyable to experience this event. And of course, bottomless mimosas at the same time as this performance was being held. So how can you say no to a drag brunch? Food, bagel locks, cream cheese, mimosas, and of course, a drag performance. I think if, if Shul had bottomless mimosas, everybody would come I was going to say the, the same thing. Are people going for the bottomless mimosa event? Um, exactly. So, you know, it, this, this got me thinking, right? And, you know, drag performers talk about, you know, drag is, is part of their persona. And I remember I even have heard um, some drag performers talk about how this is not, you know, a costume. Um, this is actually who they really are on the inside or who they really feel on the inside. Um, and this got me thinking about masks and whether when you put on a mask, sometimes it's covering up who you are and sometimes it's actually the ability to reveal who you really are on the inside. Um, and that drag has a lot to teach us about Elul and that sometimes um, revealing is covering and that our personas that we want to set out are often covered by things that we, you know, uh, wish we were doing better, but we're not. We're, we, we like to think that we're good people, but sometimes we sin, sometimes we're different. And um, I don't know, I, when you were talking about that, that's really one of the things that came into my mind. And I was wondering what are the lessons that we can learn from drag uh, about Elul? I, I mean, I'm not an expert on drag or Elul. But you're I'm, a performer, I'm this right? In now. You, yeah. you understand this idea that sometimes you take of yourself and you put it into a performance. Yeah. And sometimes when you are playing somebody else, um, you're really sublimating um, yourself, but sometimes you're actually bringing of yourself into the performance itself. And Sure. So I mean, every role that you play as an actor, you kind of magnify this part of yourself, whether it's some, a part that you didn't know as well or it's mm -hmm. a part that's already there. It's almost like, what would I be like if I had grown up in someone else's circumstances? And sometimes you have to do a lot of digging to find that empathy to be able to understand. So I don't know if it's quite the same as well, needing to put myself out there to play a character. Maybe if I was doing stand-up or doing something like that, I could see the parallel, but... You know, I think the first part of, you know, recognizing that we have to do better is the recognition that, you know, yes... The, the sinner in us, whatever that means, however we define that, is something that we'd like to um, do better at, be better with. But sometimes we are, we have to acknowledge that that's part of our nature, right? Our, part mm -hmm. of our nature is not to be perfect. Right. Um, and when we sin, we are, uh, we are acknowledging our humanity, our fragility, um, and that's taking a part of ourselves and exposing that and saying, that's, that's who I am. Um, and then 
when you're trying to do better, you're saying, yes, the inner part of me, the, the, the part of me that I want to be out there, I have to express that more the same way that you find a piece of yourself and you want to use that in a character, right? Sometimes it's playing a character to be able to move forward um, and to, you know, say, we're going to fake it till we make it. Um, be better, even though you don't necessarily feel it until you get to the point where you're actually living it. Um, and so I think that there's something there about playing the part of being better um, because that's in you, even though you don't necessarily feel it yet and learning to feel it by practicing it and by doing it. Um, I don't know, David, you must have some thoughts already. Well, I do. And in, you know what really has made me think about different identities and the identities that we play in different spaces. You know, one time we want to present ourselves to the world as this, as so-and-so. But another time when we're in a different environment, we're presenting ourselves in a different way. We like, and we are not all one thing all the time to everybody, right? I am not the David Sklar all the time that is the podcast presenter. I am something else in a different environment, whether I'm a son, whether I'm a partner, whether I go to a different activity, we all inhabit multiple identities and multiple roles. And I think drag allows us to inhabit a different part of ourselves. Sure. And I think that that makes it explicit, right? It actually goes and says, it reminds people that we're doing this and we're not actually, you know, some people like to say, no, I'm my true self wherever I am. And drag sort of reminds us that, no, sometimes you have to perform and you are, you get to perform and you're doing this in a specific space, the way exactly the way you're talking about it. And it sort of underlines that we are not necessarily one thing. We are multiple things um, and that that's okay. And that's also a very like Elul related sort of uh, concept to, to sort of say, it's not like I am this great person on the inside and everything else is fake, right? We, we play different things in different spaces. And um, yeah, <laughs> David, what's, what's, your, what's your Jewish drag name, David? It was always Miss Shugana. Miss Shugana. Okay. Alana, do you, have a, do you have a Jewish drag name? I don't think I do. Do okay. you, Javi? Um, well, no, I, I remember for, for such a long time, I was always like joking with friends about, you know, what they could be. And my, uh, one of my good friends, uh, Jake Smith, who, uh, who does perform drag under the name Marsha Ball Soup. Um, I was talking to him about this last night. Um, Jake's a great performer. Uh, he had a previous drag name uh, called Crystal Knocked. <laughs> yeah, I know. Jake, Jake um, freaking anyways, Smith. Jake freaks me. Anyways, uh, but he sent me a list of things. Here was all my alternate names that I have for uh, for 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 drag Jewish drag performers, and oh my god, some of them were just so good. Like uh, Yum Yum Kippur. Oh Yum Yum Kippur, no, uh, but that's a good one. Miriam Hanivi Yas, um, um, Anti Semite. Oh um, and of course, my favorite, which I think I would pick this if this was my drag name, maybe, I don't know, uh, Gefilte Bitch. <laughs> and on that note... Um, what about Gefilte Swish? Gefilte Swish, that works also. That, that, that could be a little uh, nicer and cleaner. On that note, right, um, I do think that there are drag uh, lessons that one can learn. And I think that that's the beauty of that Elul, is to find Jewish lessons in everything that surrounds us. Um, and that's the uh, discussion about Shul and drag. Um, maybe Shul should be have more drag uh, performances. Um, could you imagine Torah, right, Torah reading? Like if it was uh, drag Torah reading? Lip-synced Torah reads? It would be very exciting, and I think you would get a lot more attendance. I, I think you should suggest that, uh, David, to, to whatever Shuls you pass by in the uh, Calgary area. <laughs> Will do. 
Okay. Well, now it's time for our show for our Nachas, the things that are newish and make us feel good and Jewish and sometimes Canadian-ish um, uh, for the past week. Alana, what's your Nachas this week? My Nachas goes out to the Siegel Center, uh, the Jewish theater in Montreal, who's announcing their new season tonight. Uh, th- this is tonight, Thursday, if you're listening to this on Friday. It was last night. And it just uh, brought up the joy that I have for theater really starting to come back in a normal way. I feel like in other years, because of COVID, there would be an announcement, but then a few months later, things would lock down and then everything got pushed. And now it kind of feels like things are starting to flow again, which is really exciting. David, what's your nachas this week? Well, it's going to go to Danielle Breitman, the Director of Engagement Programming at the Calgary Jewish Federation. She was basically instrumental in bringing everything together from Pride Shabbat to the Drag Brunch to next week's Pride Parade. Quite a wonderful, wonderful human being who has been uh, so dedicated to this community, really does a lot. And she just recently got engaged. So big mazel tov to Danielle. Mazel tov. Mazel tov from the Frozen Chosen. My nachas this week. Um, I don't, I'm usually not very good at uh, self-promotion. I'm usually horrible at self-promotion, but I'm going to do a little bit of self-promotion today. Um, I have a new podcast launching today, new podcast series. It's called Lesson Plans. Um, and it is a collaboration with the Akiva School in Montreal, and more specifically, their uh, head of school, Eric Grossman. It's basically about how schools function. Like if you've ever wondered why there's a school bell, right? That's our f- a big question that we have, or why we learn calculus. Um, we go into some of the educational theorists and theories uh, and explain how school got to be the way it is and how it functions now. We do have an emphasis on Jewish schools, um, but it's for just about anybody who's interested in how schools work. Avi, why do we learn calculus still in school? Uh, it depends who you ask, uh, and you'll have to listen to the podcast. Because because I'm ready, I'm ready to ditch that entirely. Yeah, because you learned calculus so well in school. I know you, David. You never. It doesn't matter calculus. who uses calculus to this day, exactly. unless you're like a math wizard and that's your job. Let's get rid of calculus. Let's get rid of trigonometry and bring in like how to do your taxes in grade nine and ten. Absolutely important questions, and these are all things that are addressed in the podcast. Um, you can check it out at JewishLivingLab.com/lessonplans, um, and we have a special exclusive excerpt. Um, if you stay tuned after the credits, we will have a clip from the show for you guys to hear um, and hopefully then subscribe. Every week we talk about what is our nachis for the week and everything like that, but did you know that nachis means pride? What a perfect week for us to be talking about pride. This is true. This is true. Mind explodes. If we had sound effects, which we do, but we don't use them. Anyways, um, we could (laughs) actually... Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending September 3rd Shabbat Parashat Shov Team. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer of CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you could share Bonjour Chai with a friend. It really helps get the word out, and as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Meshuganasklar. This is Lesson Plans, a new podcast about schools, how they work, and how they got that way. 
I'm Avi Feingold. I'm a podcaster and a former high school teacher, and I'm joined for this series by my good friend and colleague, Eric Grossman, the head of school at the Akiva School in Montreal. So welcome to the first episode of Lesson Plans, a new podcast that wants you to get a 10 on 10 on every pop quiz about school. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm here to get schooled about school from my good friend and colleague and master educational theorist, Eric Grossman. The idea of teaching, being a profession, getting a degree, becoming a professional teacher. Teachers are supposed to be women. Um, everybody learns the same thing. Um, the bell, right? Um, and uh, and that everyone goes to school. And that everybody goes to school and that it's free or it's supposed to be free. Right. So all of that still stands today, right? That so much of those pieces are still around. Um, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Are there... Is, let's try to unpack what's at least what you think is the good and what you think is the bad um, in all the pieces that we have left from Horace Mann's total reshaping of the North American school system. Horace Mann is an incredible whipping boy for people who are dissatisfied with the current school system. People who want to point to our school system and say there's something not working here, there's something bad here, point to Horace Mann. And they point to Prussia where he got this from. So where did all of this come from? Why did Prussia have this model? So Prussia, when they instituted this model, had just lost uh, in the Napoleonic Wars. And uh, the question is why? You know, why? Why did Prussia lose to France in, mm-hmm. in those wars? And the answer that was circulating at the time was that the Prussian soldiers were not obedient and the Prussian soldiers didn't properly follow rules. And that's where this came from. There's this German philosopher, his name is Fichte. And Fichte says, what we need is an educational system that will whip people into shape and make them obedient. And if you look up Horace Mann uh, from any perspective that is uh, liberal in education and mm-hmm. says you know, education needs to change, uh, they're going to point to Fichte. They're going to say he's a proto-Nazi. Right, he was. Wow. Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. Everything's anti-Semitism. Huh? Yeah, yeah. He's a pro, he's a proto-Nazi, and like his philosophy, and they're gonna and they're gonna quote this quote, which I brought here today because it's so incredible. Mm-hmm. So this is from Fichte, the father mm-hmm. of the Prussian system. Education should aim at destroying free will, so that after pupils have left school, they shall be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. That is the philosophy that lies behind our current school system. Wow. So you can so in in essence we can blame the school bell, right, on Napoleon being a very good um, head of, uh, of of an army, right? There and you defeating go. The, and defeating the Prussians. There you go. Well, that's why he needed to have one of the hands out of his uh, out of his uh, to, to, to ring the school bell. So he could ring the school bell exactly, because <laughs> he had that. Uh, he, he was good with his his soldiers, and and he won. And and so the Prussians, feeling inferior, decide that they have to be more obedient. Uh, Horace Mann learns about obedience from this, and now everything that happens in terms of obedience, in terms of all these pieces, is related to that. So I'm guessing that the obedience thing is something that we might want to get rid of based on your opinion here from what you're saying. Well, the question is, how much of this do we want to get rid of, right? Mm -hmm. Once you ask that question about the bells, which you asked in the beginning, right, do we really want to limit learning to specific periods of of time? So then we can really open up the whole question, right? How much of this do you raise uniforms? Do kids all need to look alike? My school is the only one in the uh, private school system 
uh, around in the, the Jewish private school system that doesn't have a uniform, one of the very few private schools in Montreal that doesn't have a uniform, uh, was reactionary against this. Students shouldn't have uniforms. Uh, the other topics that you bring up, the professionally trained teacher, maybe we should bring teachers in from different expert areas instead of from the teaching schools. Teaching schools produce a certain cookie-cutter type teacher. Maybe we should bring teachers in from different fields who have different skills. So let's pick some of these things apart. Um, suppose um, the pros and cons of a uniform, right? You said that like it's we don't need this rigid cookie-cutter approach. Um, there, is, there, there are positives to having a uniform that everybody doesn't have to worry about competing right for fashion and that you don't get to see well the rich kids get to wear these types of clothes and the poor kids or, or less rich kids don't, don't wear these types of clothing and and then that's there um i've always felt that like having seen schools with uniforms and having worked in them kids always manage to figure out even within a uniform how to make the uniform cool or not cool or whatnot right oh yes the research shows that it's actually in the uniform schools that you have the most social competition uh, because you basically squeeze out every kid has yeah. a desire uh, mm -hmm. to distinguish him or herself from uh, from his or her peers. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so instead of the clothing, it becomes about the shoes. Or if you say everyone has to Whatever wear the same shoes, now it's about the, the glasses, backpack or, or the glasses or the hair berets. Is there anything valuable about uh, about uniforms? There's something valuable about conformity altogether. And this is, I think, what man understood. We live in a society that expects conformity. What's really interesting about the uh, uh, the uniform question, uh, you asked you know, what questions do people ask. When I was in high school and we did interviews for incoming students, one of the first questions that kids asked was, do you have a uniform? And I remember our admissions director, this was in Boston, used to say, it's interesting, every kid who comes into the school, that's their first question, do you have a uniform? Mm -hmm. And she would say, why are you asking that question? And the answer is always, well, because I want to assert my unique identity through my of clothing. Course. And the admissions director would say, that's funny because you look exactly the same as every other student who's walked into my door. And that's the interesting thing, isn't it, right? On the one hand, yes, we want to distinguish ourselves. On the other hand, uh, really... As humans in society, we are all conformists. And that's the only we way to exist. We all self-select. You know, the, the person who is a punk or a goth um, and says, oh, I'm not dressing like the man because I'm not wearing a suit or I'm not wearing business attire is self-selecting into a group. And there is a goth uniform or a punk uniform or a, you know, whatever group that you belong to, there is outer markers of whatever you choose to belong like that. Exactly. And what man was saying is the society that you're going to want to belong to is a society of people who make a living and have a good, healthy lifestyle that you'll have happiness if you have basic material wealth and you'll be able to buy food and mm -hmm. buy a home and buy clothing and raise a nice family. All of that is possible only with a certain sense of conformity. That's just how society is structured. You know, it comes up with, uh, uh, with ADHD in schools. It's an interesting mm -hmm. thing that uh, there's always pushback and, and I think well-founded pushback that parents have 
when uh, their doctors or their uh, psychiatrists or psychologists say, you know, uh, you know, I think your child has ADHD and should be medicated. And parents, and again, I, I sympathize with parents. Their first reaction is, you know, well, I don't want to medicate my kids. You know, I don't want my, my kid to, uh, to have to be controlled medically to sit in a chair and at a desk their, their whole lives. Why should that be so? And it's actually a good question. Uh, why, should that, why should that be so? And the best answer, which I heard from a physician, a pediatrician, said, because throughout most of their lives, they're going to have to sit at a desk <laughs> and sit still for most of the day. That's just how our society is structured. So yes, if we were Christopher Robin, you know, hoppity hop hopping mm-hmm. through, the, you know, through the grass. Sure. So yes, yeah, so you don't need ADHD medication. But given that the way society is structured, no matter what job you're in, right, even these jobs that we have fantasized about, you know, oh, you can make your own hours. Anybody who works has some sense of having to sit and conform to certain regulations. Mm-hmm.